Before we get into God's word this morning, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made your truth known to us. Once you spoke through the prophets like Moses, Isaiah, then you revealed yourself to us more perfectly through your Son. And now you reveal yourself to us through your word, through all the things that have been written about your Son by those who knew him and those who were taught by him. And Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you might imprint the truths of this word deep in our hearts. We pray that you might encourage us as your people who you have brought together, as your family who once were not a family. We pray that you might encourage us by your Spirit and strengthen us by your Spirit to live in the light of this word because we can't follow it very well by our own strength and we need your help and your guidance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going as a church through the great hymn Amazing Grace. And we've been, I decided to do this instead of a book of the Bible as a real opportunity to spend six weeks just really at the heart of the gospel about what it is all about, that it is about the grace of God. And um, I got a message from someone the last week to tell me that apparently there's, there's something like 13 verses of amazing grace in the various different versions out there. But I only have six down for this plan, and this is, this is number five. And this is one of the ones that we sing uh, in the, um, the My Chains Are Gone version that we sing from Chris Tomlin. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. Now, that's a problem for me because I live here. And that, that doesn't sound like good news to me. This earth that we live on, our gardens that we tend, our homes that we live in, this earth shall soon dissolve like snow. Why is, why is that amazing grace? Why do we sing about the end of the world in many of our hymns and the songs that we sing? Is, is that a healthy thing to do? I mean, if a random person came in off the street and we were singing that, it'd be a bit weird, wouldn't it? The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. I don't know if you've ever thought about that as we sing it, or maybe I just overthink things. But I want to have a bit of a time this morning to think about why we do sing things like this in our songs, why we remind ourselves of the fact that there is a use-by date on our world. And we might not know what that date is, but there is a point when this world as it exists now will be no more. 
And this morning I want to cover, I think, that some of the main things, the main reasons that we do it is to, to remind ourselves of the reality of God's judgment on sin and on the brokenness in our world. We sing it to remind ourselves of the promise of his grace. And we sing it to remind ourselves of what it means to live now in the calm before the storm, in the time before all of these things happens. We're also going to look this morning at some words that Peter, one of the the people closest to Jesus through all of his ministry, wrote about the end of the world and about this idea that we're looking at in this verse, the day when the earth shall dissolve like snow. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Above all, You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming, he promised? It's been 2,000 years. Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, The heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. If you've ever wrestled with something Paul was saying in one of his letters, know that you're in good company. Peter also said, sometimes Paul can be hard to understand. 
which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Peter starts off talking about the reality of God's judgment, as opposed to those scoffers who say, he's not going to come back. There's not going to be a day of judgment. And from the context, it sounds as though he is talking about people that are professing to be Christians that have twisted the word of God. The truth is some will and and some do deny the Bible's teaching on judgment, on the fact that Christ will return, create the new heavens and the new earth. And they do so to follow their, their own evil desires. And there's been a number of of cults and and things throughout uh, our world, throughout history, that have, you know, either the person leading it has claimed to be the returning Jesus Christ, instigating his uh, rule here on earth, and that the the, the heaven on earth is just this unbridled uh, hedonism, this, this living in all sorts of sin and wickedness. It's not a new thing for people to deny what the Bible teaches about what God is going to do on that last day. Where is this coming? They say, life just goes on. Same as it's always been, and it will keep on going on. As I uh, mentioned as we read through, it's been 2,000 years, well, nearly 2,000 years, since Jesus was making some of these promises. And... Sometimes it feels like it could be 2,000 more years. Sometimes it's easy to think, oh, none, you know, if Jesus hasn't come in those 2,000 years, then he's not likely to come in my lifetime. And he might not. I don't know. No one knows the day or the hour when Christ will return. So, but, uh, but Peter, he addresses that by talking about the fact of God's timing. Don, you're always keen of saying God's timing is always right. And that's because it is. And God has a time when all of these things will take place. But God's timing is not just an arbitrary, oh, I'll throw a, throw a dart at a calendar and that'll be the day when it will come. But Peter says, God is patient. The whole reason... Humanity didn't get wiped out the minute we first sinned is because God is patient. And he waited 4,000 years from, from Adam to Jesus before the Saviour would come into the world through whom the sins would be forgiven, through whom those who became, came before him and those who came after him would be saved. And God is, that same God who has been patient all along is still patient. 
The reason that he hasn't ended it all yet is because there's some people who will become Christians that haven't become Christians yet. And he's giving them time. In his plans, he's holding till... he waits for that last day until all of those, all of his people have been gathered. He's patient. Because he doesn't want people to be destroyed. But what, he wants everybody to come to repentance. Now that's, that's different to his sort of... That's different to saying that everybody will be saved. But it shows us about the character of our God, that he doesn't desire destruction and that people will go to hell. And if more people going to heaven means waiting a bit longer with this world, even with all of its brokenness and all of the things that are happening, then that's what he will do. But why does it matter enough that, that God is going to come in judgment, that, he's, that this world does have a time limit on it? Why does that matter enough to sing about it in our songs? You know, pretty much every week we'll have at least a song that refers to, if not the judgment, at least heaven, which will come after. Well, it matters to sing about it because it's the end of the story. It's where things are going. It's where our world is going. And so, as... We're going to focus on it in the third point. It makes a big difference to how we live our lives now. That's why Peter asked this question, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? What things matter? But before we get to that part, we need to ask the question, well, if the world is going to be destroyed, doesn't that mean nothing matters? Isn't everything going to end? And of course, that's where the next part of the song comes to bear. But God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. Peter says, in keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God's judgment is an end of a sort, but it's not the end, full stop, nothing comes after. It's the end, but it's also the beginning of what will come next. God is just. That's part of the nature of God. God is not a king on his throne who sees his buddies doing the wrong thing and he, well, he just turns a blind eye because, hey, that's okay. They're, they're good blokes, really. God is just. And in order to be just, that means that there must be a punishment for every sin, for everybody who has rebelled against their creator, for everybody that has hurt others. Uh, and, and hurt the creation that God has made. But sin is not just a problem for individuals. Sin affects the whole creation. The whole creation is in groaning because sin affected the whole of creation. It's not just humans that were affected by what happened in the garden. But death and entropy came into all of God's creation. 
through what happened, through the entrance of sin into our world. But judgment in God's in the Bible always seems to come hand in hand with salvation by grace. When we look at Noah, there was in the days of Noah, God looked for a righteous person, not a perfect person, or he would have found none, but a righteous person. And there was one family in all of the people that lived in the world at that time. And God's judgment came on that world. But in that judgment, one family was saved, spared by God, not because they were perfect, but because they had faith. Noah followed God and Noah had faith that when God told him that there was going to be a judgment, he listened and he did what God told him to do. Or we look at the time of the Exodus, the release of God's people from slavery in the land of Egypt, their salvation by God's grace upon them came hand in hand with the plague that brought death to the firstborn of all of Egypt. And likewise, when they came to the Red Sea, their salvation from the army that came and pursued them was that God parted the sea for them and led them through. And then hand in hand with that came his judgment on Pharaoh's armies because they had failed to keep their promise to let God's people go. But there's nowhere where God's judgment and his salvation by grace come together more clearly than at the cross. At the cross, God's judgment on sin was poured out. The cup of God's wrath was poured out on his very own son who was in our place and all of our sins were counted unto him. He who was without sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God doesn't desire that any are lost. He wants people to be saved. And he's always made a way to save those who will listen to him, those who will trust in him, those who will follow him. And that's how it will be done when all things will be made new. The day of judgment will also be a day of great grace. As each and every one of us who deserves hell because of the way that we have rejected God in our own lives, I don't know if we'll literally be called up in a courtroom before God or anything like that. But God will look at us on that day and in us he will see not our sin but the righteousness of Jesus because of the cross, because of what Jesus did for us, that everybody who puts their faith, their hope in Jesus Christ will be saved. So we sing about the end of the world to remind us about the reality of God's judgment, 
but also about the promise of his grace. The promise that on that last day, what will matter above all else is whether we are on team Jesus, whether we have given our lives to him. And that doesn't mean, you know, God's not going to have a checklist there. Since you became a Christian, I'm going to check, you know, did you, did you hit our minimum threshold for giving in the giving box? Did you do enough good things? Good things will come out of the life of somebody who puts their trust in Jesus. But that's not the measure of what gets us in. The measure is that we have put our trust in him. So the reason we remind ourselves about these truths of the end of the world is it matters to how we live now. And this is true whether he returns in our lifetime or not. I want you to think about that you're planning some extensive renovations. Uh, And by extensive renovations, I mean you're knocking the whole thing down and you're starting again. And there's a day coming when that house that you're living in now is going to be knocked down and you'll have to find somewhere else to live for a while. And then you're going to rebuild it and it's going to be much better. But while you're living in that house ticking down the day as to when the the big demolition truck's coming along. What would you put your efforts into in the house? You wouldn't completely neglect your house and let it completely just become unlivable. But also, you know, things like maybe the paint job's getting a bit patchy. Suddenly that's not so important anymore. Maybe that carpet looks a bit old and tatty, but that doesn't really matter. The end of the world and the start of a new one doesn't mean nothing matters. But some things matter a bit less. And some things matter a bit more. So when it comes to this end of the world, this this destruction of the world, which is what the house is just a picture of, What does that look like? What does it mean to live uh, in light of what's going to come, in light of the judgment? There have been some people who have sort of taken this to an extreme and sort of only ministry in the church, only uh, going out and telling people the gospel. That's the only thing that matters. Nothing else that we do in this world matters. Now, those are important things, ministry that happens in the church. And going and sharing the gospel with people. But I don't agree that they're the only thing that matters. You going to your jobs and uh, going to uni, going to school, these things matter. Going to the Rotary Club with with your mates or the the men's shed or the... uh, What other hobbies do people get into? Craft groups or going to the footy, playing footy. These things still matter. But perhaps they matter for a different reason than they used to matter. Me going and playing football with the Roosters, nobody's going to care in eternity whether the Roosters B-grade won the Premiership in 2022 or not. (laughs) 
I'll stand by that. I promise that nobody in, the, in heaven will care about that. I'll ha- I'm happy to call that a prophecy. But, um, but it will matter whether some of those people I've come into contact with are there with us in heaven or not. I think keeping our eyes on eternity makes the people that we encounter wherever God has put us so much more important. It's made the way that I am at work, whether I'm that grumpy, surly person that people don't want to come and talk to because, you know, I didn't have my cup of coffee this morning or I just don't like coming into work early. Um, you know, the, the, my attitude towards my work suddenly matters because in that I have an opportunity to demonstrate the character of Christ. In that I have the, the ability to uh, work with integrity as if working for Christ himself, as Paul has encouraged us to do. To be the sort of person that when you, you know, if you do get that gospel opportunity to share with somebody, they don't go, oh, I don't know if I want to be a Christian. I mean, that person's usually pretty grumpy. I mean, that's, that's an, a simplification, but it does come down to that sometimes. If we're the only piece, people that, the only Christian that people know, then Christ will be judged by how we have lived. So I don't want to, like I said, I really want to speak against the idea that working, you know, on a farm, on a, you know, in an office block, uh, in retail, in real estate, whatever it might be, it all matters. But it matters maybe for slightly different reasons than why it matters to the secular people you work alongside. It's not about getting the most money to buy the best status symbols. And it's not about being at the, the top of the tree and, and necessarily being that, that most ambitious go-getter that uh, gets promoted up the ranks. But it's about the opportunity to demonstrate what Jesus would be like if he worked in an office or if he worked down at Foodland or if he worked on the farm and how you interact with clients and customers, with co-workers and with bosses or with employees. Both of those are a good opportunity for, well, are a place where we can be tested in our, our ability to be Christ-like in our responses, but both are wonderful opportunities. As I noted, Peter draws our attention in this passage in light of the, world, the end of the world, whenever it might be, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And further on down, he, wa- he tells us, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Jesus, with God. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. So there's a couple of things that living in the light of 
the end of the world is going to mean. One is about being that sort of person that shows Jesus, imperfectly of course. None of us are able to perfectly show people what Jesus is like. And when you get it wrong, he forgives you. He comes to you with grace, not with, oh, boy, you stuffed that up again. Now they're going to think I'm a, you know, grumpy just because you were grumpy to that person. Jesus isn't like that with our failings. And again, we want to do these good things not to earn salvation. Salvation comes because we've put our trust in Jesus, not because I've done enough good things. But we do it because suddenly these things matter a bit more in the light of eternity. But I think the other big thing that we want to do in this life is work on our relationship with him to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. One image that the Bible uses is uh, of that day when Christ will return is of the wedding feast, of the day when Christ will come and take his bride. And so by extension, that means that right now we're dating. And what do you do when you're dating? You get to know the other person more before you get married. You come to grow that relationship uh, in that time before we are married to him. Peter also warns us not to get carried away in error. Dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Sometimes we can get caught up, sometimes churches get caught up in an error that invests far too much hope in this life and in the things of this life that we live your best life now. The, the actual title of a Christian book written to Christians, to live your best life now. And I'm pretty sure the Bible says our best life is the one that comes afterwards. But sometimes people can get so caught up in being prosperous in this world, in being healthy in this world, and getting over-invested in this world. Now, like I said, it's not as though nothing in this world matters. But it's not where we want to put all of our emphasis either. It's not where we want to put all of our hope. And as I noted, as we finish off in our passage this morning, if we're living in light of the world that is to come, we want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To know every time we fail that we're forgiven. To get to know him more. And in doing that, to get to be more gracious to the people who let us down. And to be able to, by our behaviour, show them the one who has made such a difference to us. Let's pray. Dear God, your Bible teaches us that one day this world will end. And the images that are used of it are pretty striking. Images of fire wiping this world clean back to just bare rock. 
And that's pretty confronting. But as we read your word, we read that this world is broken by sin and you must bring judgment on sin. And you're working towards a world where there will be no sin. But to get to that world, you haven't just wiped out this one along with all of the people in it. But you've invited us to be saved from this broken world, full of sin, into this new one that you are making, where there is no mourning or sickness or crying or pain. But we are sinful. There's no way that we could be in a world with no sin if it weren't for Jesus, if it weren't for the fact that he has paid the price that we could never repay. Lord, we thank you that you gave your life for us. We pray that we will help, uh, that we will live our lives putting our trust in what you've done, keeping one, one eye perhaps back on the cross and all that you did for us. And the other eye forward to the day when everything will be made new. That we might live our lives changed, transformed with the new priorities that that gives us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.